Friends, would you join me in prayer? Father, would you open up your word for us? That not just in understanding, but in the convictions of our hearts, the ways and means that you desire for us to live. Lord, would you do your work? Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how many of you uh, play badminton or at least have played bit badminton before in the past? <laughs> I think majority of us, huh? Okay, how many of you have played doubles in badminton where you play with another partner? Okay. How many of you have played doubles with a partner who's not very good in badminton? Uh, <laughs> okay. Not, not so safe to put out your hand if the, the person you regularly play with is next to you, huh? Uh, my, my wife loves playing badminton and she is pretty good at it. Uh, I will say that she is um, better than average, la, quite, quite a bit better than average. And average in Malaysia is really pretty good. La. Okay, so, uh, so she's pretty good at badminton, but for me, I, I put the bad in badminton. Okay? So every time someone tells me, you know, they, they say, uh, Pastor, you put on weight already, la. you go exercise, play badminton, la, right? And so I tell them, even if I join you, the, most, the, the muscle group that will get the most exercise is my lower back because I'm going to spend all my time bending down to pick up the shuttlecocks because I miss, and then I bend down and pick up, and then I miss, and then I bend down and pick up. Uh, so that's my standard of badminton. But I have played doubles with my wife before, and she's very kind to not abandon me right away and tell me, go sit down, you know, rest. Uh, and, and my strategy is basically stay near the net and stay out of her way. Right? So if a shuttlecock comes, I just bend down and trust her to get it. Uh, and so I stay out of her way, she zooms around and she, she does all the work. Lah. And so whenever we score a point, I know the credit is all hers, it's not mine. Right? I did nothing to win the point. Uh, today, we are looking at a similar sort of dynamic where just like having me as a badminton partner, God is the one who wins David's battles for him. And so that's the takeaway uh, message for, for today, that God brings the victory for his purposes. Okay? God brings the victory for his purposes. Uh, today, we are continuing with our series on 2 Samuel. And just to recap, last week, Brother Chong Jin brought us through 2 Samuel chapter 7. And chapter 7 is a very important chapter where God makes a covenant with David. David says he wants to build a, a house for God, a temple. And God says, no, uh, that is not uh, your... You are not the one to do it. Lah. Your son will do it. Okay? And, so he said, and, and so God makes a covenant with David to not just make his name great and give him rest from his enemies, but also to guarantee that David's lineage will have a throne that is established forever. And so, this covenant will be fulfilled in Solomon, yes, partially, but it would only be completely fulfilled when Jesus enters the picture. Okay, so we will see that in the second half of the year when we look at the Gospel of Matthew. But for today, we turn our attention to chapter 8, 2 Samuel chapter 8. Now, the purpose of chapter 8 is not really to give a historical record of accurate 
uh, timeline and, and exactly who was defeated, how many were defeated, where were they defeated, that sort of thing. Instead, if you uh, looked at a, a sort of like a map of the nations in the, the ancient Near East during that period, you will see that the, the enemies that are listed are actually in directions that are surrounding Israel. Okay, so uh, the, the Moabites, the, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Zobahites, Arameans, they are all surrounding Israel. They are to Israel's north, south, east, and west. And so the main message of this chapter, of chapter 8, is really that Israel was surrounded by enemies and yet God was able to defeat them for David and for Israel. And so today we'll be looking at three main points. Firstly, that God wins David's battles. Secondly, that David gives God credit. And thirdly, David channels God's blessing. Okay, so let's look at our first point, that God wins David's battles. Now, as we read through chapter 8 just now, David seems to be the main actor. Okay, so he is the one uh, as recorded to defeat the Philistines, Moabites, King of Zobah, Arameans, Edomites, receive tribute and, and uh, set up a garrison and all that. David is the one who does all those things. But verse 6 tells us who the true champion is. Uh, so verse 6 says, He, David, David put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And if we look at verse 14, same pattern. David put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And so one thing we need to remember that is that when it comes to the Bible, every time there is a repetition of something, it is sort of like a, 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 a nice big sign, a, a, like a trap, not a traffic light. It's like a big billboard telling us, pay attention. Uh, so when the Bible repeats something, it's trying to get your attention and say, hey, this is important. Now, even though David is the one facing all these battles, the one responsible for his victories is God. The Lord is the one who gives David victory. I, find it, I, I, I found it interesting uh, that in both verse 6 and verse 14, so verse 6, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Verse 14, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. The literal Hebrew phrase for the Lord gave David victory is actually the Lord delivered or the Lord saved David wherever he went. And so what this, what this tells us very clearly is that David is not the one who is responsible for winning any battles because he is not in a position to do the winning. He may have been in those battles, but the Lord saved David. The Lord delivered David from his battles. We need to remember, <clears throat> often we get the idea that uh, by the end of David's reign, 
Israel is like this mighty military power and so it's like the, the peak, the, the heyday of Israel. Okay, uh, so David and, and Solomon's kingdom. When Israel was being ruled by David and Solomon, oh, it is like, oh, Israel's uh, most powerful. Okay, and, and Israel was a military power at that point. But at this point of the story, David had just become king of Israel. He had just taken over from King Saul. They are not yet, Israel is not yet the strongest military power in that area. They are surrounded by several nations, nations that God had told Israel to make sure they, they defeat them and they uh, eradicate them when they take the promised land. And so, although they've defeated their longtime enemies, the Philistines, who had killed Saul, the first king of Israel, not too long ago, there were still other military powers all around Israel. And so this is still like a wrestling of power for that area. Okay? It, wasn't, it wasn't that Israel was, was, had the ability to just steamroll over her enemies. No. Eventually, Israel's peak as a nation is around the corner with David and Solomon's reign. But here at this point, chapter 8, they are still rising in power. And so without God's help, without God's deliverance, without God's salvation, David may very well have faced defeat in any battle. Because remember, just short, not too long ago, Saul, former king of Israel, also faced David, uh, sorry, faced defeat. Right? Now eventually, some of the surrounding nations would even ally together against David because David was becoming a threat. But still, the Lord delivered. The Lord saved David from their combined strength. And so, if you read through chapter 8, it says that he defeated 20,000 men. He defeated thousands of chariots, captured thousands of chariots. In another battle, he, he defeated 22,000 in another battle, he defeated 18,000. And so these are not small numbers. If you recall the, the battle in 1 Samuel, where the ark was captured, you know that one? Uh, there it records 30,000 Israelites as being killed, uh, as uh, being struck down. And that was considered a devastating loss for Israel. Right? Here, each battle itself, 20,000. 22,000, 18,000 plus when you put the, the technology of chariots, it amplifies their power, okay? Thousands and thousands. So, these are not simple battles that David is fighting. These are massive, overwhelming battles. And yet, David prevails in each one. Now, friends, we are not facing military battles. But the God who won David's battles is the same God whom we worship today. It is, he is the same God whom we sing about. He is the same God whom we pray to. And as much as God is concerned about saving and delivering David in his battles, God is also concerned about saving and delivering us from our battles or our conflicts. And so if you are currently facing some sort of battle, some sort of conflict in your life where you feel like you just cannot. I have good news for you. Maybe you cannot, 
but God can. One foundational aspect of God's character is His omnipotence. And so, it basically means it is His all-powerfulness that nothing is more powerful than Him. There is nothing that He cannot do. In terms of His character, there are some things He will not do because of His moral character. He won't commit evil. He, he, he won't sin, you know, that sort of thing. But in terms of ability, there is nothing that He cannot do. And so, if your question is whether God can save you from whatever battle that you are facing, whether it's against temptation to sin, whether it is against opposition to your faith, whether it's against worldly values that are threatening to overtake your family. If your question is whether God can, the answer is yes, He can. As Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 23, everything is possible for the one who believes in Him. Because everything is possible for the one whom we believe in. We believe in God who is omnipotent. Everything is possible for that omnipotent God. So it's not a question of whether can or cannot. But there is still a question of whether God will or will not. Because you see, even though God is able to give us victory in all our battles, He is not obligated to if it is not His will. So we cannot just declare victory over every challenge that we face because we have faith that God can conquer whatever or whoever is standing in the way. Sometimes the challenges that we face are a consequence of our own sin. Sometimes there are struggles that we face in the pursuit of our own desires. I remember I had a church member uh, not in Penang, not this church, so don't try guessing, you don't know them, okay? Uh, I had a church member where they faced a legal battle with somebody else who was also a Christian. But this person whom they had a dispute with, uh, they were very clearly dishonest and trying to cover up some abuses, at least according to what the, my, my church member told me, and it seems to be something that uh, even like the judge agreed and that sort of thing. Lah. Okay, so, so uh, my church member had a legal dispute with this other person who was a Christian. They were quite clearly in the wrong uh, in terms of justice and, and dishonesty. And, and what my church member uh, found out was that this person was telling their friends how they were claiming God's victory to win their case against my church member. And so my question, <clears throat> my question is, is God obligated to give that person victory in their legal battle just because they had faith? Well, if, if, if they were going against honesty and justice, which is God's will, then no, God is not obligated to bring victory to that person just because they have faith in Him. Now, coming back to David, the victories that God gave him weren't just for his prosperity, not just for uh, success of David's private battles. Because these battles that David uh, was saved and delivered from were actually a fulfillment of covenant promises. 
on three different levels. Let me take you through them. Firstly, you remember the covenant made with Moses. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. This is the covenant made with all of Israel, right? On Mount Sinai. And so, at this point of Israel's story, David had just taken over as king. It is quite likely that he was leading Israel in a, a direction that was very pleasing to the Lord because he uh, obeyed the Lord in almost everything, right? And so it's quite likely <coughs> that these victories were actually a fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant and David is leading Israel to honour God in every way. And so God is upholding His covenant promises he is blessing them with victory that the enemies who rise up against them will be defeated. He is fulfilling his promises for obedience. That's the first one. Secondly, when uh, God made a covenant with Abraham, he tells him, to your descendants, I give this land. Okay, And he specifies from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, they had not yet conquered all the way to the Euphrates. But when David defeats Hadadezer, chapter 8, huh? when, when he defeats Hadadezer and he takes over the territory, it fulfills what Abram was told, that his descendants would extend their borders to the Euphrates. And so here is a second covenant promise being fulfilled. Firstly, to Israel. Secondly, to Abram. And thirdly, it is a direct fulfillment of one part of the covenant that God had just made with David in chapter 7. So chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David, right? Uh, establish your throne forever. Uh, he also says, you will no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress. Uh, you will have rest from your enemies. And so this is also a fulfillment of that covenant promise. So these battles that David won for David weren't just for David's own personal, uh, you you very good boy, uh, you nice to me, now I give you nice things. It's not just that. God is fulfilling His covenant promises to Israel, to Abraham, and to David himself. So, when God won these battles, they were for His purposes, not just David's own personal benefit. So we don't invoke God for our own personal battles, but when our battles align with God's purposes, then we know we will prevail. Let's pause for a moment to reflect on our first question. Is there a battle you're currently going through? And if there is, is it God's battle or is it just your personal battle? And ask God to give you His perspective on it. Okay, let's spend two minutes reflecting on this.
Okay, let's look at our second point. Second thing we can see in today's passage is that David gives God the credit. How do we know that David is the one who uh, David gives God the credit? Well, as David defeated his enemies, he ended up with a lot of plunder. Okay, when uh, when he defeated them, uh, they would uh, have uh, precious metals from their shields and that sort of thing, as we read just now. Huh? And so he ended up with a lot of gold, a lot of silver, and a lot of bronze. And sometimes, when he was merciful, he would leave uh, some of them uh, alive. They would give tribute. Okay, so they become sort of like vassal states. Huh? So they are subservient to Israel. And so as they give tribute, there's even more gold, silver, bronze, treasures. But if you look at verse 11 and 12, David dedicates these articles to the Lord. He dedicates the plunder. Okay? Now, as we saw in a previous sermon, David's pattern is often to inquire of the Lord. We know that he does this before going into battles. He does this to inquire about how to go about the battles and that sort of thing. And so, if David inquires of the Lord and God answers him and David follows the, uh, God's instruction and the battle is won, then David knows who deserves the credit because God is the one who has won that battle for him. Now, all these treasures that are dedicated to the Lord will eventually end up in Solomon's temple. Okay? We know that David doesn't build uh, Solomon's, uh, the, the temple for God, but he still contributes to it. He still prepares for it. Throughout the rest of his reign, we see that he is still doing this preparation for his son, who will eventually build the temple of the Lord. And so we see that David doesn't just give God credit, he wants God to benefit for his successes, not him. And that keeps him humble and dependent on God. This is quite literally an example of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, 21. That where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In David's case, his heart was for the Lord and so his treasure was given to the Lord for his temple. Now Solomon is well renowned for his wealth and his splendor. We know uh, it's recorded <coughs> that he is very, very, very wealthy, right? But David is not as famous for that. David is famous for military battles. David is famous for uh, men after God's heart. David is famous for being a beloved king. But he is not so famous for being this rich, wealthy, uh, luxurious king. And I suspect that this is because the majority of the wealth and splendor that David obtained was dedicated to the Lord for his temple. And so when the Lord saved David from his enemies, David clearly attributed his successes to the Lord. I'm sure we've faced something similar. Uh, when we face a challenge we cannot overcome on our own, we turn to the Lord. Right? If we don't usually pay any attention to God, then we definitely pay attention to Him when we are facing great battles. When things are beyond us, we don't know who to turn to. We turn to God. We cry out to God for help. We repent of all our sins. We fast. We pray. We ask other people to pray for us. And you know, everything is about God, 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 God during this time when we are facing this battle. But 
the opposite is also true. We tend to forget God once our battles are over, right? And so the temptation then is that we think about how clever we were to overcome our battles or how strong we were to persevere through them. Friends, it's important to remember God during our battles, yes, but it is just as important to remember God after our battles. If you recall Israel's wandering in the wilderness during the period of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Israel's greatest problem is not a lack of God's activity during that period. They saw and witnessed so much of God's activity, His work, His miracles, uh, all sorts of things, right? Parting of the Red Sea, manna, quail, water from a rock, uh, a pool that that became drinkable water, and all sorts of things. Uh, And and, uh, saving from their their enemies who were going to, to overwhelm them, winning their battles. And so God's presence, God's uh, power was witnessed in so many ways. Israel saw firsthand. So their problem was not a lack of God's work and activity. But if you follow their journey through the wilderness in 40 years, we see that they had a tendency, and this was their problem, they had a tendency to forget God's activity. They had the tendency to forget what God had done for them. And so they would rebel. They would behave. They would decide in a way that reflected that they didn't just forget that God had delivered them and saved them, but they didn't believe that He could do it again. Okay, so they forgot. And so this is one of the reasons why it's so important to testify of the wonderful works of the Lord around us. For those of you who have gone through experiencing God, you know that every single week we encourage one another, declare the wonderful works of the Lord, share with others how God has done something special in, around, or through you. Because when we declare the wonderful works of God, we are not just giving God the credit, we are also recalling it. We are bringing it to mind every time we recount our testimony. Every time we share with somebody, we are remembering what God has done for us, around us, in us. And so when we remember, it's not just for the sake of the battle's past. It's not just to remember that, oh yeah, God, you were there. I feel so uh, blessed, loved. It is also for the battles to come. When we remember what God has done when we remember that God is the one who has won our last battle, then we don't need to worry as much about our next battle because the battle may change, the people involved in the battle may change, the nature of the battle may change, but the God who wins that battle does not change. Later, when we come before the Lord's table, we will have opportunity to remember how God won our battle against sin and death. And as you do that, would you remember to thank Him? Would you remember to give Him credit for all that He has done on the cross, for all that He is continuing to do in and for you? Let's look at our second question for today. 
What is one battle God has won for you? Think of a way you can share this with someone soon. Two minutes. Let's look at our third and last point today, which is how David channels God's blessing. Now, earlier we saw how David seems to be the main actor, right? He defeats the army, he sets up the garrison, he receives the tribute. But even though God was blessing David and fulfilling his covenant promise for him, God's purpose didn't just revolve around David. Although David is receiving the Lord's blessing, by experiencing victory wherever he went, he was gaining fame, he was uh, getting rest from his enemies. But God uses David also to bless his people, Israel. We see in <clears throat> verse 15 that when David reigned over all Israel, he did what was just and right for all his people. And so we see the end result of all these victories is that David in his reign over all Israel, does what is just and right. Now again, we need to continually remind ourselves as we go through 2 Samuel, David is not perfect, right? But as far as what is revealed to us in the Old Testament, David's faults were mainly in his own personal and family life. As far as who he was as a ruler, he is a good king. Right? He ruled Israel according to the instructions that God gave the kings, except for the do not have many wives bit. Right? But in most ways, he led the nation to walk according to God's law. And so when David did what was just and right for all his people, 
he was also reflecting two aspects of God's character. And I found this uh, interesting and important because when he reflected God's character of justice and righteousness, these are two things that do not come naturally to sinful men. We will see from uh, many evil kings that come after David and Solomon. Uh, if you read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, this king after this king after this king after that king, almost all of them did not practice justice and righteousness. And so justice and righteousness are not things that come naturally to sinful humanity. <clears throat> but once again, we have insight into David's spiritual life in the form of over 70 Psalms. And this is why David is such an interesting character to study because it's not just a historical narrative of his life, what he did and that sort of thing, but because of the Psalms, we have insight into who he was as a person, what his priorities were, how he felt, how he wrestled, all those sorts of things. And so if we look through the, the many Psalms that David wrote, many describe him as seeking the Lord, loving the Word, uh, meditating upon the Word, hungering for the Word. And so when David did these things, when he sought the Lord, he loved the Word, he meditated upon the Word, it resulted in him reflecting God's character because God revealed his character of just, justice and righteousness in his word. And so as David spent more time with that and spent more time with God, he would reflect God's character. Today, our call to pursue God's character is summed up in one word, and that is Christ-likeness. Ephesians 4.15 tells us quite explicitly become like, like Jesus Christ in every respect, right? And so when we pursue Christ-likeness, when we pursue God's character of Christ-likeness, it yields spiritual fruit. And we know the, the very famous uh, list of spiritual fruit in Galatians 5, 22, 23. Love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you look at all these fruits of the Spirit, who benefits from it? Who benefits from when, when your life is producing joy, when your life is producing patience, when your life is producing gentleness? Who benefits from these things? Yes, we benefit. Yeah, we we uh, are at peace with God. We uh, these, these things are all good for, for who we are as uh, followers of Christ, but they also benefit other people, right? And so my point is, when we are blessed, when we grow into God's character of Christ-likeness, God's blessing doesn't stop at us. Friends, when we are blessed by God, it is always an opportunity to be a blessing to others. So have you been blessed by God? If your answer is yes, then very likely you have been blessed so that you can also be a blessing to others. I'm thankful to hear just now during the testimonies from our Education Aid panel recipients, uh, that some of them indicated that 
as much as they've been blessed by the church, they are looking forward to the day when they too can be a blessing to others. And when I talk about blessing, I'm not just talking about money, okay? So this isn't a try to get more so you can give more sort of sermon about prosperity, okay? It's not that. God blesses us in all sorts of ways. He, sometimes He blesses us with a keen mind that we can uh, uh, process things, we can articulate well. Sometimes He blesses us with the ability to make conversation, that we have charisma, and when we talk, people are drawn to us. Sometimes He blesses us with the ability to lead, to organize, to mobilize people. Right? And so, when He blesses us with those things, naturally, we will try to benefit ourselves as a result. We build a, a strong career, we build a strong family, we, we accomplish great things, uh, and, and people say good things about us. But I'd like to challenge us today to consider, if God has blessed you, how might you be a channel of His blessing to others? perhaps to those under our charge, like David, or perhaps to our peers, or perhaps even to people that we don't normally associate with, even to total strangers. If God has blessed you, how can you bless others? Let's look at our last question today. What is one way that God has blessed you that you can extend to others? I just want to insert a quick note here. Our immediate family tends to be a bit of an extension of ourselves. So try to think beyond your immediate family, okay? Who might you be able to bless beyond just your immediate family? Two minutes.
In conclusion, I'd like you to know that God brings the victory for His purposes. He is always able to win the battles that we face according to His will. I'd like you to be a channel of God's blessing to those around you. Let God use you as an instrument of His blessing to others. And do remember to give God the credit for winning your battles. Would you make it a habit to testify of His goodness and His mercies? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. May I invite you to stand for the invitation to the Lord's table. Christ, our Lord, invites to His table all who love Him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. You may be seated. Let us pray this prayer of confession and pardon together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbours. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's spend some moments in quiet confession and repentance before the Lord. Would you also remember what He has done for you? <laughs> 